like to welcome you uh, to week, we're actually in week 20, believe it or not, of our series from the book of Acts, and that is historical, because uh, I have never, in my time as, as pastor, I have never spent 20 weeks in the same sermon series. I got curious this week, and I actually went back through the archives. I actually have a couple of 19-week series. For whatever reason, couldn't go the distance, but today we are officially in uncharted territory. And Acts is a, it's an incredible, it's a really good book to, to be spending that kind of time in, um, especially right now, because Acts maybe maybe more clearly and more precisely than any other book in Scripture, what Acts will do is it will consistently answer the question, what is Christianity really supposed to be like? What is it supposed, what is it supposed to look like? How does it, how does it move and live and breathe and operate in a world um, that doesn't know God and in so many ways stands against God? Uh, uh, the book of Acts will answer that question like really, I think, no other book in Scripture. And, uh, and, and getting an answer to that question, I think, is something that Christians need as much as skeptics of Christianity. Because we have, all of us, by nature, we just have this proclivity to forget what this is really supposed to be and, and add things to it or take away from it or try to dilute it. And Acts saves us from doing that. And, um, and so we're in a section, we're actually in the final section of the book of Acts. It's, um, it's really the final third. And the final third of the book really has one theme, and it's the sufferings of Paul. We kind of got into it last week, and, and we're carrying into it uh, this week. So I want to read to you, we're going to be in, um, I want to read chapter 23, verse 11, uh, and then 24, 10 through 26. So let me, let me start in 23, 11, and, and, uh, and we'll get rolling. It says, the following night the Lord stood by him being Paul and said, have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And then in chapter 4, starting in verse 10, it says, When the governor motioned to him to speak, Paul replied, Because I know you've been a judge of this nation for many years, I'm glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You're able to determine that it's no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me disputing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple complex or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they provide evidence to you of what they now bring against me. But I confess this to you. I worship my father's God according to the way, which they call a sect, believing all the things that are written in the law and in the prophets. And I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there is going to be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. We're definitely going to get back to that verse today. Verse 16, I always do my best to have a clear conscience toward God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my nation, and while I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me richly purified in the temple, without a crowd and without any uproar. It's they who ought to be here before you to bring charges, if they have anything against me. Either let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, or about this one statement I cried out while standing among them, today I am being judged before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. Since Felix was accurately informed about the way, he adjourned the hearing, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I'll decide your case. He ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom and that he should not prevent any of his friends from serving him. After some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, 
Felix became afraid and replied, leave for now, but when I find time, I'll call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. For this reason, he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. And we'll leave it there for now. This is God's word. So if you've been following along in this series or, or, or if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that prior uh, to this point, really for most of the book of Acts, Paul is on the offensive. And he's really going wherever he chooses. But at this point in the book of Acts, Paul is uh, he's playing defense for really the first time. And he's no longer going wherever he chooses. He's actually going uh, where other people take him. And you'll find specifically over, over the final chapters of the book that things uh, really only go uh, from bad to worse. You know, from, from false accusations to beatings to imprisonment to s- storms and shipwrecks and snake bites and, and, and the whole nine. Just everything that co- can go wrong uh, does. And what, what Luke, the author of Acts, is doing all through these, these chapters, starting in the section that we're in, is uh, having concluded telling us about three, Paul's three missionary journeys, He's now walking us through in in really fine detail all of these public trials that Paul had to face. And um, and in in doing that, as you you really take a look at them like we're going to today, like we we even started last week, uh, what you're going to find is that they kind of give you a behind-the-scenes look, not just to the judicial trials of Paul, but also to his personal trials. And that's what what we're going to talk about today, trials. Uh, this teaching is called Trials and Transformation, and, and what, I'd, what I'd love to be able to do, what I'm, what I'm going to try to do is answer the question, uh, how can you be transformed by your trials? Because that doesn't happen by default. Uh, so what we're going to look at is, is really just three ideas I'd like to offer you. First off, we're going to look at what God, and only God, can do in our trials. Secondly, what God calls you to do and me to do in our trials. And then thirdly, we're going to look at how you and I can do what it is that God calls us to do. And, and really, we have to understand all three of those things, you're going to see, if we want to be transformed by our trials. So with that, I want to get right to our first idea this morning. I only got three of them, but the first one is this. Number one, God's hand is at work in our trials. So I'm in, I'm in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, which says this. The following night, The Lord stood by him, being Paul, and said, Have courage, for as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. Now, if you remember from last week, um, Paul arrived in Jerusalem. He went to the temple. He was recognized by some Jews. They, they, uh, They started a riot. They tried to kill him, and they almost succeeded, but Paul was actually brought into Roman custody in order to Uh, to save his life, which is where he is now. And so prior to to this verse, Paul has had a pretty rough go of things. And um, although Paul isn't quite sure of it yet, he's got a very long and a very difficult road ahead of him. And uh, and it's into that setting, while he's in Roman custody, uh, with nothing but uncertainty for the future, that Jesus said to him what what we just read there. Uh, The more that I, that I, thought about Jesus' words here in, in verse 11, and this probably isn't going to surprise many of you, the more I saw in them. It's a general rule of thumb with the words of Jesus. If you just camp out on them for any length of time, you'll find they go a whole lot further than you thought at first. And you can read verse 11, you can read Jesus' words as, as a promise that simply says, don't worry, Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. Uh, but Jesus actually says more than that here, because he, he, he doesn't just say you'll make it to Rome, he says you're, you're going to testify in Rome. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, is, Paul, you're not only going to wind up where you're supposed to wind up. Uh, once you get there, you're going to do exactly what you're supposed to do, what I've called you to do, what I put you on planet Earth to do. 
And, and so essentially, this is, a, this is Jesus saying, Paul, everything that happens to you from where you stand to where I'm taking you, everything that happens from, from Roman custody in Jerusalem is where that uh, meeting with Jesus took place. Everything that happens from Jerusalem to Rome, that's just a part of the path I've laid out for you. And you can rest knowing that I'm working in and through all of it to get you where you're called to go so that you can do what you're called to do. That's what Jesus is saying to Paul there. Now, you can imagine, uh, if you were in Paul's shoes, that's an incredibly comforting thing to have the Son of God appear to you and, and say to you. Right? If, if you look at what's happened to Paul up to this point and everything that, that he was going to go through after this, uh, you kind of touched on this in the front end, I think just about anybody would look at Paul's life and feel sorry for him and say he's this, you know, he's this poor victim that you know, his life is just coming apart at the seams. But what's really wild is, is if you, you watch Paul and you follow along with him through the remaining chapters of the book of Acts, uh, and even in the, the New Testament epistles that he wrote during this time, Paul never acts like a victim. If anything, he acts like a victor. Uh, th there's never this kind of like passive resignation that he's just, you know, captive to his circumstances. There's this quiet, calm, joyful confidence about him. And it came primarily from understanding this promise that Jesus gave to him. That circumstances aside, nothing was going to keep him from going where God was going to take him so that he could do what God had called him to do. Now, if I were you hearing all that, the first thought that would come to my mind is that's great for Paul. But Jesus did not appear in my jail cell and give me a promise like the one he gave Paul. And if that's where your mind is right now, if I could just speak to that, I would say it's true. Jesus did not give you a promise like the one he gave Paul in Acts 23 verse 11. But Jesus gave you a better one. Because this promise given to Paul here is actually just a, a um, it's a whisper of, it's a glimpse of a far greater promise that gets fleshed out in the rest of Scripture that everyone has access to uh, in the name of Jesus. With that in mind, let me, let me read two verses to you. First off, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, ironically written by Paul, says, We have also received an inheritance in him, predestined, that's a scary word, according to the purpose of the one, now listen to how this verse describes God, the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. Now that verse by itself teaches overall, I'll make it personal for you, that God's hand is over every single aspect of your life. That none of it has been random, none of, none of it has been chaotic, and none of it has been meaningless. See, a, a lot of people have a, even, in, even people who claim Christianity, a lot of people have this, this tendency to view God um, sort of like a clockmaker who builds the clock and winds the clock and then lets it go and lets it run out however it's going to run out. Scripture could not be any more clear that not only does God not operate that way toward the universe, he does not operate that way toward your life. He's a God who works out everything in your life in agreement with the decision of his will. Now that verse by itself I think is interesting. It's just not necessarily comforting until you compare it and, and really uh, combine it with another promise given to us in Romans chapter 8, one of the most encouraging verses in the Word of God, if you ask me. This is Romans 8, 28. It says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. What that means, Ephesians 1, 11, Romans 8, 28, means that not only 
Not only has nothing that's happened to you been random, but God is so powerful and he is so wise and he is so sovereign that he will ensure that everything that happens in your life will eventually work together for your good. If I can just point this out, the promise here is all things work together. That's not the good things will work together. That's not the things that we really like that God led us through will work together. That's a promise that everything that God has ever walked you through in your life, in your past, in your childhood home, things that you've experienced that God would legitimately say are bad, are evil, are wicked, that you've been on the other side of, things that you believe have crippled you and kept you from becoming the person that you could have otherwise been if those things hadn't happened. This is a promise that God is going to work even in those things, causing them to work together for your ultimate good as his purposes unfold in your life. Now, I just want to point out something. No matter which way you slice it, that is a better promise than what Paul was given in Acts 23.11. And I, I don't think there's a better illustration of what that looks like in real time in the entire Bible uh, than the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. I brought up his, 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 uh, his life story a number of times because it's such, a, it's such a hopeful, it's such an encouraging story to walk through. And if you're not familiar with the details of Joseph's story, what happens right on the front end of his life, as soon as we meet him, his brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt. And that's, uh, that's actually kind of a high point for him because things only get worse after that. Once in Egypt, he gets, uh, he gets lied about. His reputation is destroyed. He gets wrong, uh, wrongfully thrown in jail. He gets overlooked, forgotten, passed over while he is there. But if you're familiar with the story, you know that God was working through all of that. And he had ordained Joseph to rise to become the prime minister in Egypt during this, um, this terrible famine. And it's, it's directly because of Joseph's leadership uh, the countless families in Egypt and in the ancient Near East were saved, in, including his own biological family. And there's this famous verse at the end of Joseph's story. It's found in Genesis chapter 50. It's an often quoted verse that people have gone to time and time again for strength, where Joseph is kind of looking back over his life, and he's speaking to his brothers, the very brothers that sold him into slavery. If, if you come from a dysfunctional family, uh, Scripture speaks to you. You're, you know, Scripture does not talk about that like it's anything but normal. That's where Joseph was coming from. Joseph's looking at the brothers that sold him into slavery, and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. One of the most hopeful, uh, encouraging, uh, just allows us to kind of reinterpret what, what God's walking us through. But, but I want to um, just kind of let you into to how I've processed that. All of my life I've read that verse pri in primarily one way. Joseph's statement there, primarily in one way. I've always looked at that through the lens of, yeah, all these terrible things happened to Joseph, but look at all the good that God did through Joseph. Emphasis on through Joseph. But as I, as I was putting this teaching together, one thing that struck me was not just the good that God did through Joseph, but the good that God did in him. And something that we should be sure of is that whenever God wants to do a work through somebody, he always does a work in that person. All of the things that God led Joseph through in his kind of horror story of a life between Genesis chapter 37 and, and Genesis 50, everything that God led him through, this is real important for us to understand, God did not lead Joseph through that just for everybody else's salvation. He led Joseph through that for Joseph's salvation. And actually, when you read the story, I think it's appropriate to say that God did it primarily for Joseph's salvation, Joseph's healing, Joseph's good. And, and here's what I mean. 
If you go back to the beginning of Joseph's life, you can find it in Genesis chapter 37, you will find that Joseph, I'll put it this way, there's a reason that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And it's not because he was a treasure to be around. Joseph was, was an arrogant, obnoxious, uh, self-important, entitled little kid. The scripture said he was the youngest of all of his brothers. His father, Jacob, was a foolish father. He, he favored Joseph. He made no attempt to hide the fact that he loved Joseph most. And Joseph reveled in that, and he threw that in his brother's face, in, in his brother's faces. Uh, so there was, a, there was an obnoxious, arrogant entitlement in him. And I, I, let me just tell you something that, that you already know. You put somebody like that in a position of power, and they become a dictator every single time. So the bottom line is, in Genesis chapter 37, God had a plan for Joseph's life. He had a calling on Joseph's life. He had a path that, that was going to lead Joseph to being prime minister of Egypt, second in command to the most powerful nation in the world at the time. But at that point in Joseph's life, in Genesis 37, it was not safe for God to take Joseph where he was called to go until God had made Joseph who he was called to be. And so everything that God led Joseph through from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, painful as it was, every ounce of that hardship and that suffering and his trials were necessary in making, in getting him ready, in, in making him who God had called him to be so that he could do what God had called him to do. And of course, Joseph couldn't see it at the time when he was in the middle of it because we never can. But it was, it was crystal clear to him when he looked back across the expanse of his life and saw the the hand of God in it. And it will be that way with us as well. One thing that, that we should be aware of and remind ourselves of often is that every child of God, at the end of our lives, we will be able to look back across our lives and know with, with a clarity that we'll never have in this life. We'll have it then. We'll have a clarity that allows us to see and to know that our Heavenly Father was always, only, ever good to us. Now, I, I see that theme as clear as day in, in Joseph's life, but I see the same thing in Paul's life here as well. One thing that, that, uh, that Paul's life, specifically at the end here, as he's, as he's going from trial to trial, <clears throat> custody to custody, you know, trouble to trouble, in chains the whole time. I never really thought about this before. But one thing Paul's life shows us specifically here in Acts 23 and beyond is that if God wants to make somebody a liberator, <clears throat> and, and make no mistake, that's what, he, that's what he had called Paul to be. Paul was a liberator that God sent through the Roman Empire, aimed primarily at Gentiles, to free them from the enslaving power of false gods uh, through the power of the gospel. That's what, that's what Paul was called to do. And what his life shows us is that when God wants to make somebody a liberator, you know what he does more often than not? He puts them in chains. Because you need to know what it's like to be enslaved if you're going to help set anybody else free. If God wants to make you a healer, you know what he'll do? He'll wound you. Because you need to know what it's like to carry wounds if you're going to help anybody else with theirs. And so what that means for us today, and I'll just make this personal for you, is that you should never believe the lie. You should never believe the lie that God is not right now actively involved in your trials, using them to shape you into the person that he's calling you to be so that you can do what he's calling you to do. Now, that's a really encouraging, hopeful thought. And that's really the main thing that I wanted to offer you this morning. 
And I hope that that, that helps somebody. I mean, I, I know enough to know there's a whole lot of people that have trials. A whole lot of people. Specifically right now, it just seems like it's heavier than it has been. And I hope that that helps somebody reinterpret their life through the lens of God's word. Because I think that's what preaching should do. Primarily what preaching should do when we turn to scripture is reinterpret our circumstances through the lens of what God has had to say in his word. Hopefully that does that. But when I talk about this, this idea of God using our trials to develop us, I think the most important caveat I can add to this, because I would feel like I was misleading people if I didn't add what I'm about to say, most important caveat I can attach to this is this. That doesn't happen automatically. God can use our trials to develop us in ways that would never, never otherwise be possible, but that does not happen automatically. And I, that's not a difficult thing for me to prove, all right? There's a lot of people who go through incredible hardship, and they come out the other side more loving and more joyful and more tranquil, and that's great. But there's a whole lot of people that go through a similar hardship, and they come out the other side worse for the wear. Maybe you know people like that. Maybe you've been a person like that. Or maybe between you and God, if you got real honest, you could admit you are a person like that right now. Puritans had this famous saying. They said, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. What that simply means is that the same kind of pain, the same kind of suffering, the same kind of trials can be applied to two different people. And one of them makes it through that hardship, makes it through that trial transformed. More like Jesus, softer, more able to empathize and sympathize with those around them. But, but some people, they make it through the same thing. They go through the same thing. They experience the same thing. And they come out cold. And they come out bitter and envious and small and self-pitying and callous. In, in a person who becomes a source of pain to those closest to them because they, they take out what they've been through on everybody around them. And one thing we all have in common, nobody wants that to be true of, of us. Nobody wants that to be true of them. So, so the question is, if God can use our trials to develop us, to refine us, to transform us, then what, what is our responsibility? What would God call us to do in the midst of our trials, to make sure we're transformed by them. And that's where I want to go next. <clears throat> and I'm just going to hit that nail right on the head, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the answer to that based on this passage of Scripture, and then we'll walk through it. So we're answering the question, what do you need to do in order to be transformed by your trial? The answer is our next idea today. Number, number two, you need to let your life be transformed by the gospel. If you want to be transformed by your trial, you have to let your life be transformed by the gospel, not just before, but especially in the midst of that trial. So here, here's where I see that. I'm in Acts 24, verses 14 through 17. This is Paul speaking uh, before Felix. He said, but I confess this to you. I worship my father's God according to the way, which they call a sect, believing all the things that are written in the law and in the prophets. And I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there is going to be a resurrection both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always do my best to have a clear conscience toward God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my nation, and, and I want to I want to pause it right there. So re remember, in what led up to this, if you're not familiar, Paul, uh, having been in custody in Roman custody in Jerusalem, he was brought uh, from Jerusalem to Caesarea to stand trial before the imperial governor of Judea, a man named Felix, for crimes that he didn't commit to begin with. And in the verses before this, uh, the, the religious leaders, 
brought a prosecuting attorney to Caesarea, uh, levied all these charges against Paul. In these verses that I just read, uh, verses 14 through 17, they really are, are uh, they, they sort of form the core of Paul's defense before Felix. But what, what these words reveal to us is exactly how holistically Paul allowed his own life to be transformed by the gospel. Uh, not only before, but, but specifically in the midst of his trial. So, so, so let, me, let me walk through this. First off, the thing that immediately catches my eye here, the first thing that, that Paul says in verse 14, he says, he talks about worshiping his father's God according to the way. Now, I, I know, I'm sure you've heard me say this before. I've said this often, but um, that's what they used to call Christianity. They used to simply call Christianity the way. And, uh, and Christians, before they were called Christians, which is actually a derogatory term, uh, but before they called us Christians, they simply called us followers of the way. The reason that they, that they did that is because people, both Christian and, and, and non-Christian, people immediately knew when they heard the teachings of Christianity and the message of Christianity, they knew whatever this thing is, this is not like every other religion. Followers of Jesus, specifically, maybe this will interest you, Romans used to call Christians atheists. When they would put Christians to death in the Colosseum, they'd chant death to the atheists because they knew they're not religious people. That's not a religion that Christianity is. We don't know what they are. And, and the reason, the reason that, they, that they called themselves followers of the way is because they understood that, that just like when you're walking down a path, if you think about it this way, when you're walking down a path or a way, every part of you is on that path. Every part of you is walking on that path, guided by that path, governed by that path. It's an all-encompassing way of life. Religion has a tendency to just occupy a part of our lives, but the way they knew was an all-encompassing way of life. Paul understood Christianity to be that, and that's exactly what you see in his words here. So, so when I say let your life be transformed by the gospel, let me walk you through three ways that Paul did that. The first thing he says, I confess this to you, I worship my father's God according to the way which they call a sect, believing all the things that are written in the law and in the prophets. <clears throat> in other words, what you see there is first and foremost, the gospel transformed how Paul related to God. Um, prior to Paul becoming a follower of Jesus, he'd been trained in the law and the prophets, trained better than, than you and I ever hoped to be, and um, as a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he understood God in a certain way. And he understood God and he thought of God and he viewed God in a way that, that's actually in keeping with a, uh, how a lot of people view God even today. Right, before Jesus, Paul understood God to be this demanding, strict lawgiver who puts you on trial every day and demands that you burn yourself out and work tirelessly in order to earn his approval and his love and earn your keep, in, not really in his family, more like in his company, as an as a employee relates to a boss. But when Paul met Jesus, um, and he, he, he began to understand God differently. He understood that God was, in fact, a heavenly father who so loved the world that he gave his son to die for the world. That completely transformed how he related to God from that day forward. And according to these verses, it also transformed how he understood the word of God, the law and the prophets, that all of them found their fulfillment in what God had done for the world through Jesus. So the first thing to see here is that the gospel completely transformed Paul's relationship with God. How he thought about God how he read the word of God, how he worshiped God. And so the first takeaway for us is if we want to be transformed by our trials, we must first let the gospel transform how we relate to God. But, but what, I, what I think is really worth highlighting here is that where that, that's kind of where Christianity stays for a lot of people that claim Christianity, it's just a personal thing between you and God, it didn't stay there with Paul. 
Because skip ahead to verses 16 and 17, and Paul says this. He said, I always do my best to have a clear conscience toward God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my nation. So Paul says he did his best to have a clear conscience uh, before God and men. And I want to emphasize and men there. Now that doesn't sound like a crazy thing to us, but remember who's saying this. Remember that, that before Paul met Jesus as a Pharisee, he used his beliefs as justification to leverage violence against Christians. He had Christians in prison. He had Christians murdered. And he slept with a clear conscience, believing that he was doing the will of God. When he met Jesus, his relationship with Jesus completely transformed. Not only how he related to God, but how he related to other people, specifically people who disagreed with him. And and you see a a picture of this in the next verse, verse 17. He says, after many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my nation. Now, the charitable gifts Paul is talking about, he brought to the temple in Jerusalem for the poor Jewish Christians living in and around Jerusalem. But when he says that he brought offerings, those were offerings that were he brought for the sake uh, of the Jewish nation as a whole. That's incredible to me. Uh, and let me tell you why that's incredible to me. He brought offerings to the temple in Jerusalem for the sake of the Jewish nation as a whole, not just Christians in the Jewish nation, but the Jewish nation as a whole. The reason that's wild to me is because prior to this point in his life, the Jewish nation had caused Paul a whole lot of pain. You follow his three missionary journeys throughout the Greco-Roman world, it's predominantly his fellow Jews and not Gentiles that were the main source of pain in his life. And just a few chapters ago, there was a prophet named Agabus. Before Paul went to Jerusalem, there's a prophet named Agabus that prophesied over Paul and he said, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, Jewish men are going to bind you and they're going to hand you over to Gentiles which is exactly where Paul stood right here before a Gentile ruler that he'd been handed over into custody of by his own Jewish countrymen. The point is, none of that kept Paul from giving to and serving and showing honor even to his enemies. Now, most people would look at that and ask themselves, why on earth would Paul do something like that? It's, very, it's a very easy question to answer biblically. It's because Paul understood that being a Christian meant you were saved by a Savior who gave his life for you while you were an enemy of God. And that fact completely transformed for the rest of his life. Never again would Paul leverage violence against his enemies. From the moment that he met the Savior that laid his life down for him while he was an enemy, his life was transformed regarding how he related to his enemies. And so the second takeaway here is that if you and I want to be transformed by our trials, then we need to let the gospel transform how we relate to other people, specifically the people who have caused us the most pain. It's a lot easier said than done. But the last thing I see in Paul's life here is the way that he allowed the gospel to transform, even how he viewed his circumstances. I didn't didn't read this verse, but the the, the final verse of this chapter, it's 27, uh, it, it tells us that Paul had been left in custody for over two years by this guy, Felix. Um, Felix knew that Paul was innocent. And Paul knew that Felix knew that Paul was innocent. And Scripture says that, that Felix would call for him often, for no other reason, at least on the surface, than he wanted Paul to offer him money, thinking that he had a whole lot of it to spare. But what I think is, is incredible, maybe the most challenging thing about Paul's testimony here, is that over the span of that more than two years, every time Paul met with Felix, here's what he did not do. He did not 
plead his innocence and beg for his release, even though it wouldn't have been wrong for him to do that. He also didn't curse Felix for denying him justice and cowering before the religious leaders that had hemmed him up on false charges. What he did before someone that was wrongfully keeping him in prison, robbing him of his life for over two years, every time they had a chance to meet, Paul simply preached the gospel to him. And what that's meant to show us is that Paul did not see any, Paul didn't see any period of time in his life as an interruption to what God had put him on earth to do. Paul never saw obstacles as an excuse for disobedience. No matter where Paul was, enslaved or free, in chains or abroad, Paul was determined to live out his Christian faith in front of the person that God had put in front of him. And so he, he allowed the gospel to transform how he related to God, he allowed it to transform how he related to other people, and even allowed it to transform how he viewed his circumstances. And if you and I want to be transformed by our trials, that's exactly what we have to do. Now, when I zoom out from Paul's example here, there, there was one idea that, that stood out to me. I actually wrote this down on my whiteboard in my office. Here's what Paul's example shows me, and maybe this will mean something to you. And I, I'll make this personal. The person you become after your trials is determined by the person you decide to be in the middle of them. It is completely irrational for you and I to go through life believing that our trials are automatically going to develop us more into the image of Jesus. That they're automatically going to make us a more flourishing human being by God's definition of flourishing. That they're automatically going to produce all of this spiritual health in our life by default. Some of you have probably heard of, he's a famous German uh, philosopher named uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. And I know that that is the American pronunciation of that word. I apologize to my German brothers and sisters because I know I butchered that name. Uh, Nietzsche is famous for a number of things. Uh, but one of the statements that he's most famous for is something that, that still pervades a lot of people's minds today. Uh, he said, whatever doesn't kill you, make you makes you stronger. Let me say that again. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That idea has been proven empirically false even by secular um, psychologists and psychiatrists today. I, I, this week I came across an article written by a psychologist, and it was called, the title was, what, Whatever Doesn't Kill You Makes You Weaker. And in this article, the, the, the author, who was not writing as a Christian, I didn't even think they were a Christian, he was just writing as a psychologist, explaining how wrong this idea is that trauma, hardship, difficulty, loss, and pain automatically develops an individual into a stronger version of himself. What's actually the case is that trauma by itself, by itself, will weaken an individual. In a number of ways, empirical studies have shown this, even in secular psychology. So this idea that the things that we go through, the reason I'm harping on this is because of how often I've heard it and how often I've bought that lie myself. This idea that, that difficult things are going to automatically develop us, is just it, it just doesn't hold weight. If that was the case, there would be no bitter people. There'd be no callous people. There'd be no hurting people who hurt people. It's just not the way that it works. What Paul's life is meant to show you and I is that we can't expect to be transformed by our trials if we check the gospel at the door of our trials. P put another way, if you want to be refined in the furnace, you're going to have to take Jesus in there with you. Now, here's what I don't mean when I say that. And we're almost done with this point. We'll move on to the last one. But, but here's, here's what I don't mean when I say all this. I want to make... I'm going to be very careful to not sound like I'm saying something that I don't mean to say. I don't mean that if you don't suffer perfectly well, then your trial has been wasted and you're going to come out of it weaker rather than stronger. How discouraging would that be? 
I have never suffered perfectly well in anything. You know, in a hangnail, in my sleeve getting wet when I wash my hands in the morning. I don't know anybody that has ever suffered through anything perfectly well. So what I'm not saying is if you have a crisis of faith in the midst of your trial, it's been wasted. Or if you experience and express doubt, it's been wasted. Or if you find that there's some really caustic, powerful emotions rolling around in your heart like anger or bitterness or envy, then it's been wasted. All I'm saying is when that happens, because Scripture basically says it's going to, all you need to do is process that towards God. That's what Job did. Job had crisis of faith after crisis of faith. You read the Psalms, and all it is is prayer after prayer recorded. As, as people were led through difficult times in life and they were trying to process all these wrong feelings and these wrong thoughts and these wrong emotions about themselves and about God. The key is they did it toward God. When we do that, what will happen is that suffering will only chip away at the pieces of us that were incompatible with who God was making us. And so let me just reiterate this point. The key is we have to let our lives be transformed by the gospel. But before I move on from this and get to our last idea, let me just make one final observation about this. And, and that is, if, if I were you listening to this, and, and I heard, okay, i got to let my life be transformed by the gospel, the first thought in my mind is, I got it, but it's not that easy. And, let, and let's face it, if we could just let our lives be transformed by the gospel, everyone would have done that by now. So the, the, the final question that we have to answer, and we have completely wasted our time if we don't answer it, is how can we let our lives, how can you let your life be transformed by the gospel? And the answer to that is going to be our third and final idea during our time together. Number three, you have to let your hope be transformed by the resurrection. In Acts chapter 24, verse 15, it says, and I have a, I have a hope in God. I told you we were going to get back to this verse. I have a hope in God which these men themselves also accept, that there is going to be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. One thing that has been so impressed on me during this study through the book of Acts, and this is the third time I've taught through it now, one thing that has never been more clear to me is the emphasis that the first followers of Jesus placed on the event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am, I am, it is so clear to me that we do not spend, as a community, we do not spend nearly enough time talking about the resurrection, thinking about the resurrection, and dwelling on all the implications that it has for our lives. What the resurrection means at its core is that as it, what, what it shows us, what it promises us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ promises us that this life, and I, I gotta believe that there's somebody that needs to hear what I'm about to say. The resurrection is a promise that this life so full of trials as it so often is, is not the end. What the resurrection is tangible evidence of, this is how the first followers of Jesus understood it. This is how they were able to face hardship, the way Paul faced his here. They understood that the resurrection meant that there are no dead ends for children of God. In this passage, what, what we see here is Paul, for over two years, was stuck in custody, confined, imprisoned, wrongly, completely powerless, couldn't do what he wanted to do, couldn't go where he wanted to go. He was stuck. And I'm willing to bet that there's people listening to this right now who feel just as, as much stuck as, as Paul felt here, as Paul was here. Maybe you feel stuck in a job and you don't know what's next. Maybe, maybe you've been abandoned and emotionally, your life is giving way 
and you feel stuck under these waves and waves of emotional pain. Maybe you're processing and enduring singleness, and you don't even know what that means, but you feel stuck in this stage of life. Or maybe you're married, and you feel single. There's, there's an abiding loneliness that's actually exacerbated by your relationship. You feel stuck in that. Or maybe there's an ongoing physical or mental illness that you, you've prayed and you've cried out to God and you've done everything you can think, but it, it's not going away. Just like the thorn in Paul's flesh that we talked about last week, God has not removed it. You feel stuck. You don't know what to do. I, I just want to, I, I need you. There's, if there's anything that I can say, that means anything. I need you to understand what the resurrection means. It, it is tangible proof of a promise God has made you, that you're not stuck, that you're not at a dead end, that whatever he's walking you through now is just going to become an, an infinitely smaller part of your life, that in Jesus, by, by grace through faith in his name, you have already been raised to new life. You have already been raised to a new kind of existence. And it is, a, it is an existence primarily marked by hope. I'm going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5 for you. Paul, Paul said, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also, who, who could God have delivered these words to us in a more fitting way than Paul? Who had God prepared to write these things more than Paul? Listen to this. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. And I love this. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul said, this hope will not disappoint us. D don't miss this. The way that I worded this final idea I didn't say let the resurrection produce hope in you. I said let your hope be transformed by it. Because one thing that we all have in common, everyone here ha already has their hope in something. Everyone listening to this, you already have your hope in something. Every one of us is counting on something to make our life worth living. Counting on something to make us feel whole, to make us feel worthwhile, to provide a foundation for our identity, to satisfy and fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. But for 2,000 years, what Christians have said, what the church has said, is, yeah, everybody has a hope in something. But what's different about us is ours is a hope. Ours is the one hope that will never disappoint. Because our hope became a person. Your hope became a person. Your hope lived for you. Your hope died for you. Your hope rose again for you. I don't have anything more meaningful to say than that. And in Jesus... What we can know, what we can hold on to, is come what may, nothing in this life can take away our hope. If death could not kill Jesus, not even death can kill your hope. And between this day and that day, I make it personal for you. Your trials have no power over you, but to make you more like your Savior. Let me call the worship team up. I'm going to end today with a quote. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Um, one of my year-end resolutions, I've never even had one of those before, but I, I wanted to take a break from the kind of books that I was reading, and I wanted to dedicate some time to reading fiction. 
And, uh, and so I read through all the Chronicles of Narnia for the very first time in my life, which is a, an amazing read. And, uh, and right after that, um, the women's small group of our church, uh, I guess in contact with my wife, they knew that I, that I planned to do that. And, um, and so for Pastor's Appreciation Month, they bought me a book set of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Never read any of them before. And so I read, uh, I actually teared up when I opened that present. It meant so much to me. Um, I read through The Hobbit, and I'm right now in the first book of the, the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings. So no spoilers, please. Um, but there's one, one specific quote in there that I, I just wanted to leave you with. It meant a lot to me. And uh, yes, I am going to unapologetically quote Gandalf. Uh, so if you're one of the two or three people that's never heard of The Lord of the Rings on planet Earth, uh, the, the main character is Frodo. And right at the beginning of the book, at the beginning of his adventure, uh, he's got this older, wiser friend who's, who's a wizard named Gandalf. And Gandalf is explaining basically how bad things have gotten in the world around him. And so Frodo's beginning to understand how hard things are going to get for him in the path that lay ahead of him. And in response to that, Frodo said, he, he simply said, I wish, it, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Now, I know this community of people enough to know there's a lot of people who belong to this church that have said that in their heart of hearts. That you wish whatever you're going through, whatever you're dealing with, you wish it need not have happened in your time. I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf answered him, and he simply said, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that he's given us. All we have to decide is what to do with the hardship and the pain and the trial and the path that he's given us. And I know that if Paul were alive today, he would say, decide today to let your life be transformed by the gospel, by letting your hope be transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father, just, there's just a simple prayer that I would ask for myself and for all of us here and joining us online. God, would you make us the kind of people that let our lives be transformed by the gospel, by letting our hope be transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, there's, there's people you're leading through some very difficult times right now, very difficult times right now. All I would ask, God, would you let the light of your son Jesus shine so brightly in their life that they would be powerless but to see him first, but to see him brighter, more powerful, more beautiful than they see anything else, and that Jesus would be the lens through which they see everything else. In the name of the risen Son of God, we pray in hope. We ask these things in hope.